Welcome to the Designated Drinker Show, the podcast that is raising the bar on craft cocktails. I am your host, Louise Solace, and with me is my very, very talented friend. She's my very own little moon pie, the mixtress, DC Gina. <laughs> I, I don't even know where we're going with this one. Hi, Louise. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. How are you? It's good. It's good to hear your voice this week. I know. I can't wait till we're hanging out again together. We like in week, what week of this is it? Week 3,000 million? Great. Yes, it definitely feels that way. It definitely feels that way. <laughs> so speaking of big numbers and little moon pie, um, I'm going to throw some facts at you. Did you know that the Earth, um, the distance from the Earth to the moon is about 240,000 miles? And so if you were driving your little minivan with the kids packed in, going 70 miles an hour, you better stop and get gas because it's going to take you 135 days to get there. Oh it's my true. God. Yeah. <laughs> How many days of COVID has it been? <laughs> so also, so the moon is 2,160 miles around in diameter. Yeah. And it the days are quite long. This is one thing I didn't realize. The days are 708 hours long. Could you imagine how much shit you would get done if your days were that long? I mean, sort of. A month long? I, no. <laughs> All right, keep going. I don't know where you're going with this, but I'm into it. You got me. I'm so, if this was a hook for the show, I'm totally in. Go. All right. So let's talk about one more moon, shall we? And it's not your moon, but it's today's designated drinker <laughs> is the COO of James Beard Foundation, Chris Moon. <laughs> Welcome to the I show, Chris. <laughs> like Thanks for that. having me. Yeah. And I like how you did that. Launch the show. Get it launched, the show. <laughs> good. <laughs> that was good. Uh, it's a big dose of cornball cheese for you right there in the intro. <laughs> Love it. That's how long life. That's how long life feels uh, in COVID. So I thought all of those stats were appropriate. Yeah, it does. It does feel like it's seven hundred and eight hours. Every day is like the same day. It's totally Groundhog's Day. But so, Chris, what's not Groundhog's Day is your amazing journey um, to the C-suite, which you know, that's a that's quite the accomplishment. Um, tell us how you got there. How did you end up um, with that big boy title at James Beard? It's been an interesting journey. Um, I've been in this role about two years now, um, but I actually, I started in an entirely different profession. Um, I went to school to pursue opera. I was an opera singer and I minored in classical piano in Boston. That's crazy opera singer. You know, just cause. And just cause. Um, uh, after I graduated from college, I moved to New York um, with the intent of pursuing music theater. Um, and spent my first couple of years in New York um, auditioning and you know playing piano for off-Broadway shows and for auditions and doing vocal coaching uh, while I, all the while I was uh, auditioning and trying to get my big break on, on Broadway. Um, had a ton of piano work, was very fortunate to, um, to work quite a bit in New York as soon as I got here, um, but realized after a couple of years that that's not that wasn't my passion um, to yeah. pursue for a career, and it was eating up all of my time um, to make a How living. How old were and so, you when you first started playing the piano? Five. Wow. I started when I was five. My mother was a piano major in college. My grandmother was a piano major in college. Um, and so uh, it was a requirement in the household for me and my two sisters that at age five, we had to take piano for at least one year. 
And after one year, if we hated it and wanted to quit, we could, but um, one year was required. And so um, I took piano most of my, my childhood um, and have played since I was five. Um, I have a question. Where, where do you keep the piano in my New York apartment? <laughs> um, can I move my screen and I'll show you? It's right yeah, yeah. there. Oh There's my a tequila God. on there. Yeah, I, it's right next I, to me. Well, tequila on top of the piano sounds like a perfect scenario. <laughs> Um, so I moved, I moved to New York and, um, I gave up the piano work after a couple of years and I had worked in restaurants, um, since I had started working in Kansas where I grew up. And so, um, I, I quit the piano work and I got a job at a restaurant in Soho called Jane restaurant, um, on Houston street. And, um, which like every actor who moves to New York does to keep their days free so they can pursue their other passions and, um, went back to auditioning. Um, but I kind of fell back into the restaurant industry in that way and realized how much I loved it. Um, and I was a waiter and then I was a bartender and then I was the weekend manager. And, you know, in the course of two years, um, wasn't really pursuing music anymore. It was just, um, full-time working in the restaurant. And so I hopped to a color, a couple other restaurants, um, in New York. I worked briefly at the Soho house. And then I went to, um, a restaurant called Sapa that was on 24th street. That's not there anymore, but it was a restaurant of Chef Patricia Yeo. Um, she had been Bobby Flay's sous chef for many years and then went out on her own. Um, and I worked for her there for a couple of years, again, as a waiter and then a bartender and then um, doing all of their special events. And um, after about a year there, I was very fortunate that she um, kind of identified me as her guy, as she used to put it. Um, and ultimately I ended up, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> ultimately I ended up, um, you know, doing any kind of support work with her that she needed, getting her ready for cooking festivals, or, um, we did three weeks in Southeast Asia with Starwood hotels where she was kind of doing cooking demos and menu development and helped set all of that up with her. So it was a great experience. And, you know, looking back, kind of realized that I had fully abandoned my professional dreams of, music theater, um, but was okay with it. I mean, it was, it's a personal passion, but the career piece that goes along with that, um, it's just not, you know, not something that I wanted for myself. So, um, I started looking around, uh, asked Patricia, okay, I think I'm firmly, firmly in the food industry now. Um, but I'm not you looking to really over. do this. I had crossed, crossed over onto the dark side. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I had found a new, kind of gang of artistic, fun, crazy people to be a part of. Um, and I asked her, you know, where I should look to kind of start to think about an actual career. And she suggested that I look at the James Beard Foundation amongst other places. Um, said, you know, you may have to start at the James Beard House in New York as a waiter or maitre d' and work your way up because it's a small organization, but I'll be happy to send them your resume. And so um, it was quite serendipitous because she sent my resume the next day to um, Sal Rizzo, who was the director of operations at the Beard House at the time. And uh, he wrote back and said, I'm so glad that you sent this because I gave my notice on Friday and we're looking for a new director of operations at the James Beard House. It's amazing so how I, sometimes timing just works out and the universe just kind of yeah. like puts it out there for you. That's amazing. That's yeah. great. So I started two weeks later and my first day of work was the James Beard Awards in 2007. So I, I showed up to the office they said, this is your desk, here's your paperwork, et cetera. Now go home and put on a black suit and meet us at Lincoln Center because the James Beard <laughs> Awards tonight. <laughs> um, 
And, I, and I've been with the foundation most of the time since. I took a brief hiatus in 2010 um, and came back, um, but have largely been with the James Beard Foundation that whole time. That's awesome. For our listeners who don't know, um, I mean, of course, everyone knows the James Beard Awards, or most people do. And, you know, when you're going to a restaurant that's been deemed, you know, um, worthy by James Beard, you're going out for a, a pretty amazing meal, one would, you know, what you're anticipating. Um, tell us a little bit about what James Beard is. How do you get, how do you get started? And um, what would we, what would, what would our listeners want to know about it? Sure. Um, well, the Beard Foundation has been around for more than 30 years. Um, it really started when James Beard passed away. Um, you know, he was, he's credited as being kind of uh, the godfather of American cuisine, one of the first people in this country to really start talking about what is, what does it mean to have an American food culture um, at a time when Julia Child was talking about French cuisine and bringing that to the States. Um, James Beard was talking about what does it mean to, to talk about American food, regionality, seasonality, all of those things. Um, they were very good friends, I might add, Julia and Jim. Um, yeah. And when Jim passed away, um, Julia Child actually is the one that stepped up. Um, James Beard lived in a brownstone on West 12th Street in New York, and he left that brownstone to um, Reed College in Oregon, which was his alma mater. Um, and they didn't have a use for a 1843 brownstone on West 12th Street in New York, and so they announced that they were putting it up for auction. And Julia Child stepped forward got together with a bunch of James Beard's friends and raised the money for the down payment to purchase the house um, to really memorialize the history that had taken place in that brownstone. Um, and the Beard Foundation was started in 1985. Um, and so it's been a, you know, it's been quite a journey in the 30 plus years since then. It was very much in the early years about kind of what does it mean to celebrate American food culture? Um, what does it mean to have that conversation? In 1991 is when the James Beard Awards were added. Um, as a way to really professionalize this industry and shine a spotlight on the people that make up this industry. You know, prior to that time, um, in fine dining, at least in this country, you know, the chef was in the kitchen and stayed in the kitchen, right? You went out to a fancy meal and the maitre d' took care of you, but there was no face on the chef talent. Um, and the Beard Awards really sought to, to kind of start to recognize the artistry um, in this industry for what it is. Um, and so today, I would say that James Beard Awards have become kind of the standard bearer of excellence in the United States in culinary. Um, and we actually were due to uh, celebrate the 30th anniversary of the James Beard Awards this year, um, which we're still going to do on September 25th, um, just a little later than planned. Um, we also maintain the James Beard House as a performance space for chefs. So it's been um, often likened to the Carnegie Hall for chefs. We invite chefs in. Um, others from the food and beverage space. Gina, you've been at the James Beard House several times, right? Yes, yes. I'm definitely one of the most fortunate. I get to go and I made drinks for our chefs. I like was supposed to have my own brunch. I uh, highlight my own brunch this year, but um, we'll push that back because I am a well. Um, That's going to happen sometime graduate. too. What? <laughs> yeah. I yeah. said we're still going to make that happen at some yeah, point. Of course, I. You know, you're talking when you're talking about the house and you're talking about like how Julia Childs like helped them and friends to raise the money and, and do all that. I don't think, and I hope that people that are listening understand like what that really meant in 1985. You know, there wasn't like now where people are just like, let me give money to a foundation to raise a house. Like people are like, no, I'm not gonna give money to a cook. So like it's incredible to think that like, first of all, I love Julia Childs. She's like such a huge I just love her. I love everything yeah. about her. Um, 
So like, that's just another reason, like to have that foresight. And like, I'm so honored to have, you know, been able to be at the James Beard house and I be part of the James Beard foundation, Sunday suppers, um, all the stuff I've done around the country for James Beard uh, foundation. And to see the people that have come up underneath it and like, you know, I'm in my, you know, later, late years of life. So like I've been with the James Beard Foundation now, like almost like 18, almost 18 years. Yeah. So I, but I was very early on because my chefs that I worked for insisted that their beverage program people were part of the James Beard. Um, it's amazing to see what's changed in the industry in that time, right? Um, in those early years of the Beard Awards and the Beard House and launching our scholarship program, it was really as I said about kind of putting a face on the people in this industry and elevating the industry and the kind of appreciation for food culture in America. Um, and that's still a very important continued pursuit. But, you know, as the Beard Awards grew, as the Food Network has come along, as, as kind of the appreciation for the food and beverage industry in this country has grown, and certainly the recognition of the individuals who make up this industry um, have, have kind of achieved a greater platform and recognition than ever before, you know, there's an opportunity now to, I think on behalf of the foundation, we see to kind of push the conversation to the next level. And so for us in the last six to eight years, that has really been about, you know, what's the next step for the James Beard Foundation to take a leadership position. And for us, that has meant starting programs that address gender equity, that push for broader diversity and inclusion in this industry, and that help the industry and consumers um, do better as far as environmental sustainability. Um, so Gina referenced our um, Women's Entrepreneur Leadership Program, which is part of our whole suite of women's leadership programs that really kind of push for that gender equity in, in the industry. You know, the, the gender stats are still abysmal when it comes to positions of leadership and ownership. And so we're working to change that. Um, if you look at broader diversity and inclusion, it's actually even worse. And so there's a lot of work to be done. Um, and then the environmental sustainability piece is, is key. It's, it's hard for the industry because it's often more expensive to make those choices. And so how do you help um, a chef or a restaurateur, a, a bar program, look at the ways to make smart choices there? I'd actually love that we're on a cocktail-focused show because one of the things that we talk about the most when we're talking about food waste reduction is if you actually have a conversation between the kitchen and the bar, it's one of the most effective ways to make sure that you have a fully integrated restaurant and that you're kind of optimally using as much of the product as possible. Like when those things work in tandem, there's so much that can be accomplished. Uh, yeah, definitely. Sorry if you guys are seeing Brian go back and forth. He's here today with us. Where uh, are you today, Gina? Why don't you tell us? I'm at Buffalo and Bergen in Capitol Hill. And uh, we're four blocks away from the Capitol. And it's been a busy afternoon, so beautiful here in Washington. So I don't know, the sun's breaking. So it feels like a nice day. And then you don't see very many people. So it's kind of weird. So it is what it is. But um, you're, are you still, you're still serving up though, right? Like people can call yes, in. Yes, you can come. Sorry, we're doing contactless um, pickup and takeaway as well as cocktails. And you can take that all to your house. So if you're listening, please call or visit us at buffalobergandc.com. <laughs> uh, Chris, Amazing. I have something to say. I loved, the, so the well, so two things. One, the James Beard Foundation, if you don't know, is accepting donations um, because they're putting it towards restaurants to keep your restaurants alive so people can um, like apply for grants, which I feel like that program that you came, that you guys all came together so quickly and put together a funding for restaurants was not only 
it's such a generous task. And it was, it was, it was unbelievable how fast you did it, how fast it went and how many people that little, you know, you say $15,000 and to somebody that that could be the difference between never opening again, never, and, and being able to have a, ch- a chance. Right. And I'm happy for the people that got it. Like, I feel like, some people, like, I know so many people that applied and so I know some people that received it. And it is, it's overwhelming how much, you, how much emotion comes into receiving something like that. How much, mm-hmm. like you see how appreciative people are. And, you know, and they don't go and like, you know, throw it in other restaurants' faces. They went and forward, the people that I know that got it, went and helped other people after they got their bearings with just a right. little bit of help. So I feel mm-hmm. like it's really amazing. And my well group that I, I graduated um, in 2019 from the well class, which I was very fortunate to attend, my, the women in my program have been helping each other navigate COVID. It's a very strong, strong five quilts. I don't know. I don't know how to describe yeah. what we've done the network. I hate that word network. I feel like we say it all the time, but it's a community. The community. It's a very like, close-knit community. But it's amazing. It's amazing what, you know, you've put together. And I feel like if you don't, if, if you're sitting somewhere and you're listening to this and you don't know about the James Beer Foundation or you only think that it's awards, you really need to navigate their website a little bit and see all the things that they do because you might not think that wherever, you know, that they're not present where you are, but they're global and they are present. And they are helping so many people in so many different facets that it's kind of mind blowing how many people actually work and how many people you, you know, oversee in events and fundraisers and, you know, uh, scholarship programs or it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. So I feel like, you you know, with everything that's going on in this world and people are giving and they're like, where do I give, give to the James Beard Foundation. You know what I mean? Like do something like that because literally it's going to change some some restaurateur's life, some chef's life, some um, pastry chef, who knows? You know, hospitality right. program, bartender, whatever. But in, I don't in, know, I to that yeah. No, and to that point though, Gina, I mean, when you just talk about those singular people, you're actually talking about entire communities because your, your restaurant is a part of a community. The people who, who work for you is one, the people who your, your patrons, the people who you feed on a daily basis, all of that is, it's not singular and it's not, you know, siloed and, you know, I may be a little close to it, but I mean, it really is so much more than just, a place that you stop to grab a sandwich. It's really definitely a part of our life and a part of our, the livelihood of our neighborhoods. Thank you for those nice words. It's, um, uh, I've been at the Beard Foundation almost 13 years and standing up the relief fund effort and overseeing it and trying to raise that money and be able to grant it out has been probably one of the most meaningful, impactful things that I've done and been a part of in my professional career. Wow. Um, it was hard. Um, we're not a grant making foundation in that way. So to stand up that effort and we're really lucky that we had incredible support from the new venture fund in DC and a bunch of professionals who knew how to do that quickly. Um, and then the generosity of people that stepped up and helped us raise $4.7 million in six weeks, um, you know, is, is phenomenal. I just, I kind of every day ended with just such gratitude that, that people understood and, and got it and were being so generous. And then, as you said, I mean, um, 
since I've been overseeing this effort on behalf of the foundation, I've been the one sending all of the grant notification letters that people are getting a $15,000 grant. And just the, the outpouring of response <laughs> that comes back, um, it's just, it's, it's a lot to process in a really great way. It's, um, you know, we know what we're doing is a drop in the bucket given the, the kind of scope of the need. Um, but, but for the people that are receiving it and benefiting from it, it's, it's hugely impactful in their businesses. And, and I think you both said it, it's not just, it's not just, Oh, we're giving money to keep a business open. Restaurants are such a part of the fabric of their communities. Um, and Gina, you probably know better than anybody. You operate on such a small margin. It's because the majority of money that you bring in, you put back out into your community, whether it's through purveyors or supporting community initiatives, keeping people employed, it's such a part of fabric of, of each of these locations um, that that's what we were trying to save. Yes, we want to save the independent restaurant industry, but it's for all of those reasons. The ripple effect of these businesses closing is tremendous. Um, and so as many as we can help to save or, or kind of help get through this really difficult time, um, I think the more dynamic and resilient and delicious and beautiful our country is going to be on the other side of this. Absolutely. Cheers to that. Cheers to that for sure. All right, let's, okay, let me take a breath and let's do it because like I, you say so much emotion. So in the, in the time of COVID, I call it the COVID, I used to call it the COVID-15. Now I'm going to call it the COVID-35. I have found comfort in all things delicious, right? Um, yeah. Ice cream, alcohol, bread, sourdough. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't even know anymore how many calories I'm taking in a day. I just try I don't even to, count anymore. No, mine. Try to walk a little bit, a little bit more than <laughs> it's the, the evening five, cocktails. Than five hundred steps, but this drink that we're gonna do today isn't. Um, it's so delicious, but it's not exactly helpful in uh, <laughs> navigating the, uh, the calorie counts. All right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna put my screen down on. I know you can hear me. We'll build this drink together. So I want to make sure that everybody. It, we'll, we'll go through. So you guys get your shaker tens. Um, so I was I was given the notes that we love tequila, and I feel like we everybody. Yes, makes we do. Everybody woo, woo, woo. makes a margarita, right? Everybody, yes. I mean, tequila is my is, is definitely a spirit choice of mine, if if not my spirit animal, right? So <laughs> we're gonna. So I'm gonna use Milagro tequila, and I'm gonna make sure that everybody can see. Yeah, Milagro. It's a nice silver tequila, and I'm going to put it in my um, jigger. Now, this is personal. You guys can do an ounce and a half. You could do a, one ounce if you want to make it lighter. You could do a half an ounce, but I'm gonna do an ounce and a half. Is I like two a ounces boozy cocktail. Wrong? What? So you think I should? Go I like a boozy cocktail, so you think I should yeah. go one and a half? Yeah, one and a half. I have Patron over here. And that Patron's delish. I'm into that. And then I gave you guys the, the, the perimeter of the, the, the beginning of this. So you can do, you know, you could do an ounce of your lemon syrup. You can do half an ounce, depending on how you like it, because you're going to have ice cream in there. So it is a little bit sweet because it is a float. Um, and we are in Buffalo and Bergen, so we specialize in floats. So we're going to put in the um, syrup, the lemon syrup. And now this is the choice that you get to make at home. Are you, you know, sweet, bitter kind of person? Are you like, I hate bitters. I never want to put it in there. You know, and, and that's okay. But I have Campari. Oh, and I believe that that is what I told everybody. Yeah, right there. Yeah. Um, so love now Campari. I love, Campari. so I love doing half, um, 
the half and half of the uh, syrup to Campari. So if you put in one ounce, I'm gonna put in, or half an ounce, you put in half an ounce of Campari. You put in one ounce of syrup, you put in one ounce of Campari. You put it in um, the shaker tin. And then we're going to take this and we're gonna fill it three quarters of this one, the little one, three quarters away, fill with ice, and then we're gonna shake. Sorry if I step away. And the reason why you're shaking your, your drink moon. first. What? I said, I see your moon. <laughs> yeah, oh, you saw my butt, sorry. Yeah, bringing my uh, intro back in. <laughs> oh. All right. Can you hear my shake? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Good job. <laughs> okay, Gina, we're, sh we're shaking. All right, we're shaking. So now, Sorry, I almost, I almost forgot the best part. So now you take one scoop of your ice cream. First, now you drink it shaken, you take one scoop of ice cream, you put it in the bottom of your glass. Right? Does it matter which, the only strawberry ice cream then? No, you, I, I chose strawberry, but you could use any like nut flavor, fruit flavor. I mean, vanilla would be perfect. I think it's strawberry and Campari and tequila is just really, you know, delicious. Okay. So you put that in, and then you're gonna pour your cocktail over it, right? So now you have like all this like room in your tall copper, um, 16 ounce glass, and you have like on top. So you're gonna push down your ice cream just a little bit, and you're gonna notice that your ice cream is gonna begin to float, right? Yep. Yes, everyone's ice cream floating. Yes. Okay, good. So now you're gonna take your soda water, and I'm gonna step on the side because I have a, a soda arm. I'm gonna just tilt my. You could see it if I do this for you. What do I say? Now it's you can see it. Oh, yes, yes. So I'm gonna take the ice cream and I'm gonna just give it a little, a little push, and then I'm gonna go back to here so you could see that. Put the water on top. Leave a yep. little bit of room, okay? Just leave a little bit of room. You take that and. Just because, just because you're gonna put one more cube of ice because it's delicious. Look at that falling down the side. Oh, it looks so good. And then we so we talked about putting a little bit of herb on it. The herb is just kind of like you know the intermezzo. You're kind of just doing it so you can smell it. and It's kind of awesome. And that's it. So we're putting it in there, nice. and I have a huge mess I just made. But doesn't that look <laughs> delicious? It Cheers. doesn't even matter. What? Oh, yours looks really pretty. Let me see yours, Chris. I used I a ball know. jar because I didn't have a tall glass. Nice. Let's hold, friends, so. That's perfect. Got a little basil. Can we hold it? Can we hold it up? Um, all right, well, let's try it. Ooh. Oh, that's good. Oh, yeah, that's delicious. Who knew? So. You did, obviously. So here's the, here's the fun part mm. about doing ice cream. You can take this exact recipe and change it with gin, and then you can take, take all of this and put it in a blender minus the um, soda water, and you have a different cocktail that like started um, in the 1940s, and I believe it was either the store club or the Waldorf story, I can't remember, um, where the drink originated, and it's honestly wonderful. With like gin, a little bit of vanilla ice cream, you know, maybe add a little vermouth, something delicious. That's Definitely the lemon delicious. syrup. Keep the lemon syrup in your um, portfolio. And if you need that recipe for the lemon syrup, you're gonna go to designateddrinker.show. <laughs> what was that, Gina? 
Designated drinker not show. I am very bad about giving the recipes, but yeah, I will put it on. <laughs> so just so everyone knows, the housekeeping gene will have all the recipes to this cocktail, how to make lemon syrup, um, plus every recipe um, that we've had um, come before this show, which is uh, over 123 shows. Imagine that, Gina. Oh. I mean, yeah. I can't believe it. Our little show. I know. Speaking of our little show, we know we need, we need our listeners to do. This is terrible. I'm going to solicit. I, we need people to review our show. That's what we need. We need you to go to iTunes, um, go to the uh, Apple iPod or Apple uh, podcast, and we need you to write what you really think about us, which, of course, because of Gina's cocktails, it's amazing. So uh, <laughs> it, it's the only way it helps the show to grow. Just show to grow. So anyway. Anyway. Let's go back Here's to, to this delicious cocktail. So, Chris, we were talking about um, uh, about the initiatives that James Beard is making presently in COVID, and um, let's talk about your new campaign, shall we? A little bit of the sure. open for good, some of your current efforts, um, and moving forward, and how our listeners can help, um, and then we'll fill in what we're doing to help too. Awesome, I'd love to. So. Um, the work that I mentioned previously was all kind of codified about a year ago under um, really our new mantra, which was good food for good. Um, the Beard Foundation just kind of came out with that mantra about a year ago, which was the distillation of our work, which is all about bringing together the kind of pleasure and enjoyment of food, the kind of gastronomic celebration of food, bringing that together with the bigger, the deeper purpose behind our food system and how we create a better food world. So good food for good was the distillation of that. And um, I would say we were just kind of hitting our stride with how um, we were orchestrating and um, orienting all of our programs and all of our work to that framework um, when the second week of March hit. <laughs> um, and, you know, we were in COVID. Um, and, you know, as an organization that has largely existed to support the industry, but also to engage consumers around food and beverage experiences, um, a large portion of everything that we do obviously got put on hold or canceled. Um, you know, that we're no longer able to bring people together around food in the way that we were, at least during this time. And so it, it was the only natural decision to pivot and redirect um, all of the staff of the James Beard Foundation to um, determine how we could best support the industry through this crisis. Um, and so we've done that in a couple of phases. The, the first thing that we really jumped in on with our impact program team was um, to get involved in the policy conversation around the stimulus um, and, and government relief. Um, Catherine Miller, who's our VP of Impact, who's amazing in the policy space, um, has been leading that charge. Um, and that work really helped to um, lead to the creation of the Independent Restaurant Coalition, which um, has really picked up that baton um, as a policy organization to represent the independent restaurant community across America. If you um, need a, another voice for that, sorry, if you need another voice for that, I think uh, we might have somebody who's on this podcast. That would be a, she just, she has a, Gina has an amazing point of view on this. And the other day on, on one of the other shows, she was just on that soapbox, but she was so eloquent and so passionate about it. I was like, I see a politician in the make in a good one. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's, it's given the scope of the industry and the scope of the need. It's, um, we, we need policy to help the industry through this time. Um, you know, Sorry, independent foundations like us aren't going to be able to meet that need alone. Yeah. 
what Catherine did and, I, and what she's doing and what the James Beard Foundation is doing with the policy and the changes and stuff that happened here, especially in Washington, D.C. So we see what you're doing a little, like living in this city is a little bit different for the navigation because like we're, we're seeing a lot of stuff a lot faster than other cities are. New York is like coming up with how we're going to navigate it and Washington, D.C. is accepting it or or being the government side of it. So we're seeing things change a lot faster. What the Independent Restaurant Coalition is doing is not only helping restaurants get themselves and people in the, in the industry together during this to navigate it, but they're setting us up for the future. And if you read some of the stuff that they're doing, it's to protect us moving forward. Yes, get us open. Yes, how you're going to do this. Yes to all those things. But how are you? how is this not going to happen to you again? How are you going to come back stronger and, you know, a wiser business model so that you don't have to fear it? Like, that is the one thing which I find fascinating about some of um, the legislation that's going through is that, you know, they're trying to navigate a, be a better future. We all see how vulnerable we are. We all see the, the, the faults. Now it's time to like fill all the holes and, and fix it. Mm -hmm. So like, Chris, I think what you're, again, what you're doing is incredible. It's incredible. It's, oh, thank you. It really is. I'm sorry. Keep going. You keep going. I just think no, it's, um, <laughs> no, I mean, that, that's hearing it from you living through it is, is way, way better than hearing it from me. Um, so we, we have been involved in the policy work and that work continues in partnership with the Independent Restaurant Coalition. Um, as we already talked about, we then stood up the JBF Food and Beverage Industry Relief Fund, um, which to date has raised $4.7 million and um, we're making our last round of grants this week. Um, and then we will have dispersed all 4.7 million of that to independent restaurants across the country in the $15,000 grant increment. Um, and so now, now that we're kind of, I would say that kind of moment of crisis, we're still very much in a moment of crisis, but the, the panic where every day felt like seven days, um, we're getting into a place where we've had a little bit of, I would say headspace to think about what is, what does the path forward look like both for the Beard Foundation and how we support the industry. Um, and that's really where we have um, kind of unveiled our open for good campaign. Um, you know, what's clear to us is that the work of the James Beard Foundation for the foreseeable future is figuring out how we make sure that the independent restaurant community is open for good. Um, and what, what does that mean? What is it, what's needed to make that happen? You know, for us, I think this is really um, in three stages. Um, I think we're, we're kind of in stage one still, which is survive and stabilize. How do we, how do we kind of get everybody to a place of breathing and, and not total panic. Kind of stop um, the bleeding a little. Yeah, exactly. And I think, um, you know, there's a lot of work to be done there. Um, and people are in different stages depending on where they're located across the country. Um, and, you know, what's going on from a policy standpoint in their own community, opening, not opening, et cetera. Um, but that, that stabilize phase is, is critically important and something that I think um, the stimulus is involved in, our relief fund is involved in, and ongoing efforts will be involved in. For us, the second phase, which I think is the bulk of the next probably 12 to 18 months, is a, is a rebuild phase. Um, and Gina, to what, to what you said, I think what's really interesting about the rebuild phase is um, at the James Beard Foundation, we want to also think about during this rebuild, 
what the opportunities are to build back better. To your point about the industry being so kind of, um, you know, at risk, um, you know, in the way that it's built and the structures that are in place, I think there's an opportunity as we think about reopening, we think about um, new business models, new economic levers that can be pulled. And certainly a large piece of that may be policy, but policy shifts are needed to support new business models in the restaurant industry. Um, but really trying to be a thought leader in that space so that we can convene people from across the industry to think about what could this look like, right? Now that we've been um, completely exposed for how vulnerable we are, what could this industry look like when it opens back up? Can we build back better? Um, I think oh, that's, that's a, a challenging... nice way of putting it. That's a really nice way to put that, build back better. That's really nice. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an opportunity. I was yeah. going to say, you can never, ever convince them. You, you, if you said to a restaurant owner... I'll give you eight weeks and two times your payroll to close and restructure your business. Everybody and their mother would jump on that opportunity to do it, right? Right? So like, say you, everybody got the um, PPP and they could do that. They would say, okay, I'll take two times my payroll and I will close and I will work on my business. This is the first time, I, this is, I'm open eight years, right? So it's my second location, but I'm open eight years my first location, I have, you know, two, three other places. And when I tell you, I think I have a better inside of my business, even though I built my business, I work in my business, I'm in my business every day. I took this opportunity and I could have wallowed in it. I could have cried in a, in a corner, but that's just not, restaurant people aren't those people. You're either going to survive or you're going to come back in a, in a major way. And I think that like, this was an opportunity for everybody to really look at their businesses and actually navigate of like, what is, what is the core of your business and what do people really come there for? Because when you <laughs> open for to go or you, or you're trying to get people to come to your restaurant, pick up your food at regular cost and, and not sit in here and eat it and, and eat some sort of, you know, take care of your people. It is, it is extremely hard, but you get to, but you see what is actually what people want. And just because right. you might think people want this or you've done it for the Instagram, that's not what they're ordering. They're doing it. They're, they're ordering what they want and what they think that your business is. And now you have this opportunity to look at it and say, this is what my people want. Then this is what I'm going to be. And, mm -hmm. and it's an interesting time to really think about it because like I, I can see where like you could get lost in like just not coming to work, not mm -hmm. doing anything about it, letting it go, calling your landlord and say, I'm closing my space, you know? And I think yeah. the little guys, I'm definitely a little guy. I think this was a good opportunity for me to say, I could do this a lot better, cleaner, not cleaner as in cleanliness, cleaner as in, I don't need to have 500 cocktails. I can have 10 and 10 cocktails or these amazing 10 cocktails are just as good as me having allegedly 500 drinks. You know what I mean? Yeah. Sure. So yeah. um, Chris yeah. and I were talking um, before um, and I was saying, we were talking about how fragile the industry, Chris's words, you know, about how fragile it is and how COVID has exposed the space. Um, but I was saying that restaurant doors are some of the, and are some of the hardest working people. 
And I'm not just saying that because one of my closest friends is one, but it is true. It is so true that it is a 24 hour a day, seven day a week. And who am I to say this? Cause I'm not even that person. I'm going to tear up. Sorry. It's the tequila. I promise. Um, but it is, it is, I mean, and to hear Gina say, well, we're, I, I'm going to figure out, I'm going to figure out right now what I'm doing wrong or how I can change, not what I'm doing wrong, but how can I change in this new space and find that dig deep and find that strength to go, okay, time to reflect and, and to, to, um, change and to navigate differently. It's so inspiring, Gina. I want to let you know, it's incredibly inspiring because to your point, a lot of people would just could give up. And, and it's, um, I think it's true to the industry as a whole, that there's a lot of hardworking people there. I mean, I have a, I have a restaurant yeah. full of people that didn't go on unemployment. They, that worked, that stayed with me that are and all are well and everybody has on their mask right now they're all looking at me like i'm the pariah because <laughs> i'm looking at you and you know we're a fa- i mean i don't care what anybody says restaurants or families like you either build your family and your family is with you no matter what or you have a different kind of restaurant model where people come there to like like you know just learn from you and leave you know and that's that's okay too but mine is definitely like a family situation and we all treat each other the same way and like i think there's a lot to learn. And I think that Chris, like you guys working on policy and all that um, education now, even more than before, having online classes of like, I think just general bookkeeping classes or or ordering classes or mm-hmm. what do you need an inventory? I don't know. I think that's something to think about, like to teach people how to spend their, their money, their pennies wisely because right. it's, never, it's never the big purchases that we screw up on it's the little ones it's paper napkins why do i have four cases right. <laughs> yeah oh. yeah no and i think this is part of this is part of the opportunity is to think about you know i think all of that is wrapped up in what it, what do new business models look like what what do new ways of operating restaurants look like you know i think it's one of the things that i love about this industry is that to your point gina this is not an industry that is built of people who just like throw their hands in the air and give up and walk away. It is an industry of super hardworking, passionate, creative people that when faced with the challenge, seek to come up with a solution. And, you know, I, I had said to um, Louise um, when we spoke earlier this week that, I mean, I think the biggest testament to this industry is where the industry is in crisis. Everybody is in crisis. And yet, the hospitality industry is still stepping up to figure out how to feed frontline workers, figure out how to set up relief kitchens, figure out how to help other people that are in need while they're helping themselves. How do I keep my business running and functioning while I'm also making meals for a hundred people a day down the street? And it's, it's one of the most special things about the food and beverage industry and, and the people that work in it is, I think you're right. It's a family. There's a familial sense. Um, and, in a, in a family, you, you just can't wrap your head around the fact of just like, well, fend for yourself. That's not, it's not how a family works, right? It's a true sense of community. And um, it's just, it's been amazing to see that even in this hardest of hard times, this industry has stepped up to help everybody else in any way that they can. Do you think that now being like the COO, like, do you think you're going to, like your role and like how you used to like, you know, define like all the, like, I, I mean, I know that, you know, like, do you think that you're going to change it now a little bit in the way that you'll like the positions of the James Beard Foundation is going to like, like also navigate 
like restaurants and what you're going to do. I mean, like you have, I mean, there's no way you can't, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, we've, we've been talking about that very much internally that, you know, we, we have to reorient everything that we do to support the industry during this time. Um, but that also means reorienting anything that we do with consumers to help them better understand why this industry looks different on the other side of this. Right. And that is why is food more expensive? Why is it harder to get a reservation? Why are there a few fewer restaurants or not? You know, why do, what is the, what is the social kind of contract between restaurants and consumers that restaurants can do everything right from a safety perspective. But if the consumer, the consumer that's coming in doesn't maintain the same social contract of how to behave safely in the restaurant environment. So it's, it's an entirely new world, I think for everybody. And, you know, I think, I mean, I'm not going to paint it all rosy. It's, it's hard and it's going to be hard. Um, I think that would be very helpful. What you just said, like there was like verbiage that somebody could like eloquently put that everybody can adapt with their own cutesy little way that we mm-hmm. could say, this is something to post. I, I'm serious. Like, like if you feel like you have the sniffles, maybe you don't come in, you know what I mean? Like kind of like an, yeah. I don't know. I, I keep thinking about that. Like I sit in here and the restaurant's empty, right? Except for my work, the people that work here. And I keep thinking when they say I can have 25% occupancy, will I? I don't think yeah. I will. Mm-hmm. I don't think I am okay with having anybody in here yet. And I want them. Trust me, I want you to come here. It's not, mm-hmm. I'm just not sure that we are ready for that. I don't know if anybody's ready to be next to somebody and we're, and the, and the, we're okay. Do I think you can eat outside? Probably. Do I think a patio yeah. would be okay? Yeah. But mm-hmm. do I think sitting in like a tiny, and I have only tiny restaurants, you know, sitting in a, tiny little cute bar on top of each other. Is that a good idea? I'm gonna go with I don't know. No, I don't know. Yeah. Or get me a, you're right. There should be some kind of contract, the consumer and the restaurant or the restaurant that says, if you're sick, please don't come in in the nicest way possible. Yeah. And I don't mean you have COVID just like, you know yeah, what I mean? Of course. I mean, I think it's interesting, right? Because we're, we've seen that that already has happened in Georgia what you were just expressing, which is that the state is open, but the restaurateur has said, we're not opening. Yeah. We don't, we don't feel safe yet for our people, having people in our space. Um, and I think, you know, that's, that's the beauty of America and you're an independent business owner, right? Nobody can make you open your doors. <laughs> um, if Except you don't the feel landlords safe. are pushing, trust me. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, the landlords are like, go I'm to sure. the floor. <laughs> Don't worry, COVID's fake. Open your doors. So oh. let's go back to, let's, yeah. let's take this point. No, no, no. Let's take this is all really wonderful fodder because I, what I want to do is go back to the open for good. Oh, yes. Because sorry. we have, we, we as designated drinker, we are doing a grassroots um, effort to raise money for James Beard right now. Um, so watch for that. And But it is in wholeheartedly to support the open for good um, initiative set forth by James Beard. Uh, we thought it was really important. We, as the show, thought it was really important to align with the brand that we knew. And a brand that sounds a terrible way, but a foundation that we knew the money was going to go where it needed to be, and it was going to be used wisely and for things that you don't even you you can't anticipate right now. So um, we're working on it. it. hasn't launched yet, but that's a preview. But the reason why I brought that back up is because I really want Chris to explain how people can right now and help in what the organization sees their role, how they, um, how they think they're going to be able to move forward with, um, 
do you have anything on the horizon you think that that's coming that how you're going to help keep everyone open for good? Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that is our hundred percent focus moving forward. Um, everything that we do aligns to our open for good campaign, um, all in this hope of helping restaurants stabilize, rebuild, and ultimately thrive again. Um, and to get back to a place of thriving, um, as food culture in the United States is a, is a great goal. It's going to take us somewhat, some time to get there, but that's, that's where we want to be. And so for us, that is, um, that is about achieving that in a variety of different ways. We work with both industry and with consumers. So we've got, you know, distinct populations to work with, um, uh, in this campaign and this work. So, um, we've talked about a lot of the things that we're doing. Um, we do a lot of advocacy work and we'll continue to do that work, helping the food and beverage industry understand how to leverage their voices to, to push for change. We do that through our chef bootcamp, um, for policy and change program. And, um, certainly in work with the IRC. Um, the thought leadership piece as we move forward, I think is going to be really critical. I mean, as Gina and I've spoken about um, how to take a leadership position in pushing the thinking forward on what the industry can look like when it builds back better. Um, and that is going to take a lot of smart, creative people to think about what that could look like, but um, we're committed to pushing that conversation forward. The educational piece um, is critical. Um, through this time of COVID, we've actually been doing daily webinars every day, Monday through Friday at 2 p.m. Um, that are free and open to the industry from everything from how to understand PPP to um, dissecting your insurance policy, um, some great fun drink things too, just to bring a little levity into the conversation. But that free educational resource is really critical because um, the number of things that this community is trying to deal with all at once and navigate, it's, it's a lot to dissect. So having access to experts that are willing to donate their time to help, you know, dissect these things is really, is really, really critical. And then, yeah, it's, um, it's really important. And I think the feedback has been that the webinars we've been doing so far have been hugely helpful. Um, just being able to get into the nitty gritty of PPE and insurance and unemployment and, and all of those things that everybody's grappling with right now. And then for us, um, we've also been kind of thinking about under the umbrella of Open for Good, what is the Open for Good toolkit, right? As a, as a framework for all of these things, um, the considerations for the industry. Uh, last week in partnership with the Aspen Institute and a number of other partners, we released the Safety First um, Guide, which is a comprehensive safety guide um, for restaurateurs to consider um, in their businesses as they're thinking about reopening. And you know that's another place right now where there's a lot of um, a lot of different requirements, state by state, municipality by municipality. How do you navigate all of that, and what's a required, and b what's best practice for you? So um, that came out last week as part of that. And then what I'm really excited about um, is it, excited is maybe a strong word, but um, <laughs> but I think you you set it up, please, um, in that there are so many things to be considered that people aren't even thinking about if you're not in the industry that need to be yep. considered. So for example, in order to rest, open your restaurant back to 25%, the amount of PPE that you need to purchase, which was never a line item in your budget at your restaurant before, um, yeah. it's not insignificant, right? And yeah. then we've heard stories of restaurants in other states that are installing hand washing sinks right next to the front door. That is not an inexpensive proposition. Um, to run plumbing and put that in plexiglass between the host stand. I mean, it's all of these provisions come with the cost. And so 
as we think about how we can help the industry as we move forward, the relief fund itself is winding down. But one of the things we've been thinking about is how can we continue to provide financial resource for the independent restaurant community that um, is going to be faced with all of these incremental costs that you know weren't weren't part of the business plan before, um, and now are musts um, in a world where their bottom line has been you know shrunk to nothing. Yeah, and that is um, a really humongous challenges. I'm, I'm sure you've already dealt with Gina. What? Yes. I was going to say disposables. Like, like that was, you know, you buy your glassware, you buy your silverware, you buy your plates and you're like, Oh, I'm good. And now you're like, can't use them. Even if they open at 25%, you have to put them away. can't use that disposable forks, knives. At least that's, what's going to happen here in DC um, until there's a vaccine. So when that happens, then you can oh, bring out your that. glassware. I did, thought, I did not think about the fact that, and, it, and we've been in such a movement forward about reuse, don't throw anything away, disposable, single use is terrible. And now we have to rethink all of that. Wow. Yeah, but what's sad about is, like, th- wow. this is what's sad, right? Eco-friendly products, which the only things we'll, we'll use here, are already more expensive. But because they're definitely now in 100% in more need, 1,000% more demand, the cost of them has gone up so much. So now I'm like, where does that cost? That, again, that's another thing that goes to your bottom line. You're like, okay, well, I, am I going to put it on the gas? No, because I don't want to, I don't want to lose my gas, you know? And then you're like, you're starting to navigate again. Like, you know, who's going to, who takes the hit? And like, you know, I'll be, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I'm at 50% salary. And so is all my other management, Right. You tell me right now in who planned for March of your lifetime, Feb, April, May to be a 50% salary. And I have two kids at home and a husband who is in the restaurant business that is also unemployed now, right? Because he was director of operations for um, a large group. And now he's unemployed. And and then like you have the like distributors like putting on more pressure on the on the little guys because they're like, oh, well, you don't only need those cups now. So they're going to be you know, 40% more than they were before. Not 50%, because that would be price gouging. But 40% <laughs> is technically okay. So like, you know, it's kind of like, a, it's it's kind of crazy for me. You know, I don't know. But what, we're going to get there. Absolutely. We are. But it's we a are. lot to work through. It is. So on that note, I want to do a little housekeeping before we close the show, because we also want to talk about the fact that um, Open for Good, um, we'll have all of those links. Where are we going to have them, Gina? At Designated Drinker Not Show. Yep. Uh, what is that again? Come on. Designated Drinker Not Show. <laughs> <laughs> Important. We're going to have the link for Open for Good. If you are ready to donate, it'll take you right to the donation page on James Beard. We also will keep you in the loop as to how our campaign is running, our little grassroots campaign to raise really big money in hopes of James Beard as well. Um, and then I just want to thank you personally, both of you, for heading up something that's so incredibly difficult. You, Gina, on the front lines, and you, Chris, working really hard to make sure that Gina can come back full, full strength all the Gina's in the world. Cause you know, you can never have enough Gina. Uh, uh, <laughs> and top for Jen. You give us your drink. I love that. You like that? Yeah. Okay. I have one, I have one comment. I've never made a single comment on a single cocktail. Go. You had to tell me not to put like 
strawberry ice cream with strawberry bits in it because I'm, oh. uh, I, it was really hard getting them through the straw. <laughs> well, you need a spoon. I, I did say put a, put a spoon, right? You can lick it for all that anybody cares at this point. <laughs> it's in my house. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you're in your house now. This is the future dining. You're going to make a reservation on Zoom. Like, oh, Gina's going to be making us cocktails virtually. That'll yep. be the next thing we'll do. All right, guys. Chris, I want to thank you for being on the show. Thank you for all your hard work and your initiative. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you. Okay, everyone be safe. Yeah. Bye-bye. Thanks for the Thank cocktail. You. Absolutely. Thank you for coming. Thanks, guys. The designated drinker show is produced by Missing Link, a podcast media company dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Missing Link is a to learn more about HCOA or to find out about Missing Link's other podcasts, head over to missinglink.company. That's missinglink.company.